As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Yes, Sixers Talk coming your way. First quenching like that tall glass of water in the middle of the night. Thank you for downloading our podcast wherever you get your podcast, particularly at NBCSportsPhiladelphia.com. Danny Pommels and the level-headed one, Paul Hudrick, joining us as the always effervescent, uh, well-mannered co-host. Sure. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, why not? Paul, we are here um, with a special Sixers Talk podcast because we have uh, Mike Tolan, an interview he did with Michael Barkan, the executive producer of The Last Dance. You know, we've been doing these Monday podcasts, and everyone, you're going to enjoy this interview with Mike Tolan, a Havertown, Delco guy, um, a, a few, you know, sports movies to his credit. And it's an interesting interview with Michael Barkan. Be sure to tune in for that. So uh, here we are, you know, talking about this Last Dance. I think the overwhelming sentiment um, was – Really, the posthumous tribute to Kobe um, was definitely something that people took away from that. Uh, little Laker boy, I think, is what Michael Jordan <laughs> described him as at one point <laughs> during the show. Um, I, that was one of my takeaways, Paul. What was something that uh, st- stuck out to you from the show? Yeah, you know, I mean, and it was tough. To, I mean, it was like, but it was at the same time both like tough and heartwarming to see him. You know what I mean? Like it was. And even that, like, even going back, like when you see David Stern on there, it's it's a it's a little bit of a similar. Obviously, not like Kobe, but it's a similar feeling. Just like, it's really good to hear their voices and see their faces, but it's still, still, still stings a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. You saw uh, Prince was in there. There's a few people yeah. who aren't with us anymore that yeah. were in the show. So um, just thinking back, you just re- reflect on those, but uh, I definitely feel you on that. The one thing that's really starting to, and I think it's not even just this documentary, but I think it, it's even us doing all the interviews we've done, whether it was, uh, Coach Lyon or PJ Corlissimo, whoever it's been, all these connections and how people are so intertwined and you don't even realize it. Like when, like when talking about that, like Kobe Michael Jordan relationship, mm-hmm. and not even like I, I didn't realize they were as close as they were. And that's I, I know I don't know if you've been watching like the post show stuff after the documentary, but the one thing they said was, "Wait, no are one you, really- do you mean with?" SVP and Charles Barkley or yes. or just like all, all that type stuff. I got Yeah, all that. Yeah. yeah, so they do like a whole thing. And like I think I, I can't remember who it might have been Jackie McMullen who said a lot of people didn't realize that relationship, the Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant relationship was so tight and they were so close until Michael Jordan spoke at his at his um at his funeral. And a lot of people didn't realize that that they were that close. And you saw how emotional Michael Jordan got. Um because he did. He looked at him as a little brother. So it's just that was that was cool to see just in that, and it's it's funny too to see Michael Jordan go from like, for lack of a better term, talking so much shit on Kobe to then that's the relationship they got because it just shows you like he was a competitive dude, but he also he had respect for certain guys. You could tell Kobe was a guy he just had an awful lot of respect for. Another thing someone pointed out too, man, the respect that Michael had for Charles Barkley. Because there's a lot of guys on this that are his opponents, that are his the nemesis throughout this documentary, that he has some very unflattering things to say about. But yeah. Charles Barkley. Clyde Drexler, Isaiah Thomas. Right, all uh, these guys. Yeah. Yeah. He got, he got because he got compared to Clyde Drexler. That's it. Just compared right. to him, and that pissed right. him off. But, right. like, Barkley, like, you know, and he said, like, yeah, I was a little upset that Barkley won the MVP. He thought maybe I should have won it. But I was going to win this. But it just, it, I thought that was really cool and just, you know, and it also stung a little bit as a Sixers fan growing up because that was, what, a year after they traded the Sixers trade. It was that offseason the Sixers traded him. He goes to Phoenix, wins an MVP, goes to the finals, plays Michael, you know, loses to Michael Jordan. But, and it was cool, too, like just Charles doing, like when they had Charles in the documentary, him reflecting on, I don't, I'm not upset because it was Michael who beat me. 
because you can't be because it was just he was so great. And if you were going to lose to somebody, that was the guy to lose to. Bro, SVP with the analogy of analogies, when he's comparing Michael and Tiger Woods, just the fact that so many great golfers like David Duval and Ernie Els and um, uh, anybody you can name who was around in that Tiger era, like you just came on in the wrong time. Like, like these golfers were great, but this guy was just above and beyond any and everything that we had ever seen. And, and the same with Michael, like, you know, the Houston Rockets wouldn't have probably the two titles they had if Mike never left. I was initially. just going to you know say, man, yeah, shout yeah. out to the Houston Rockets. Cause like, Think about how great this Bulls team was, and they snuck in two championships while Michael was playing baseball. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's just crazy to think about that they really – they had their shot, they took it, and they nailed it for two years until Michael came back. Yeah, and uh, I don't know, man. I, you know, it, I, I want to keep perspective on all this stuff and not be – you know, this, this is the era I lived through and uh, a, a greater part of it. And I, so I want to keep perspective on all this stuff, but – just looking at Charles, just from last night, just young Charles in that championship from the MVP season. Can we stop the Draymond Green, Charles Barkley? So anybody no, yep. ever? Can we? Can we stop, please? Can, can yes. we just stop? We should listen. I'm a Draymond guy. I think Draymond's. I like him. Really they, freaking. They good. wouldn't have won. The, the but yeah. But come on, man. Absolutely. He was the defensive player of the year. He's been a big part of that team. But no, like Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley come won on, an man. MVP and took his took that. He was the guy who took that. Like. With all due respect to Draymond, it's Steph and Clay, and then Draymond. That Phoenix Suns team, it was Barkley. Then maybe like right around here, it's Kevin Johnson. You know what I mean? Right. Like he was yeah. the star on that. Forget team. about it. The best player in the league that season. And then you saw the finals. I don't know if you saw when he uh, when Barkley was interv- was getting interviewed by SVP. They showed the numbers that Barkley put up in that finals. Ridiculous. It was like mm. twenty seven, thirteen, and like five assists. Like he was. That was, he was really yeah. good. Yeah, he was yeah. really good in that series, even though they lost. And I thought that was interesting too, just to hear him say like the fact that what he regrets is that his team wasn't ready for the moment in game that one. first game, the first yeah. game. Yeah, which is yeah. it's just it's crazy. And like that's but that just goes to show you how a experience, how big that is, and how big that is to already have guys that have been in that moment, been there, done that, and, and to just be able to get get over those feelings, get over those emotions, and just get into it. And then also just how important – yeah, it's a seven-game series, but, man, every freaking game is important. And we've seen it have play out with the Sixers where, you know, that Toronto series, you know – Great the point. Game, I was, I was going to relate four, it back to the Sixers. Yeah, the game four, they had them on the ropes, and they let them off, and then they wound up losing that series. And to P.J. Carlissimo's point relating the fact that a guy like Charles Barkley, who had waited and suffered through so much losing to finally get to the championship, and in his mind, he wasn't ready for game one, even though with the magnitude of the situation, how much it meant to him. And this was the only trip he had to the finals. He didn't know that at the time. But just the fact that it, the, the magnanimous moment right there, to think to Carlissimo's point that a 23- and 26-year-old and Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid would be ready for that moment. Not that they can't be, but I'm just saying, like, this a guy like Barkley – who, who also took solace in the fact that Michael Jordan said the same thing about when they right. played the Lakers. Like, like I just wasn't ready for what to expect in that game one. So, um, I mean, it, it really just – no substitute for experience. Yeah, man. And, and that's and it. these young, young guys trying to, you know, overcome this. So, I guess, you know, when you look back, like, you know, credit to the Warriors for being so young and, and reaching that pinnacle uh, so quickly. But I think getting back to one of your other points – I think what Michael realized when he saw Kobe and, and also uh, something we, we're going to touch on in a couple of minutes, Michael Jordan's competitiveness. I mean, with the pitching quarters, with the security uh. people and the, the whole bit. But I think the thing is, is that I think what he saw in Kobe was some of him and his competitiveness maybe oh, yeah. pushed that away a little bit or didn't want to. And then like Kobe's like, nah, I'm, I'm still here. I'm still, you know, going to be, you know, looking you in the eye, like, you know, as if you're my peer, like we're equals, even though I, I know I'm still in my second or third year. Uh, I, I think that Michael realized like, man, like this dude is the real deal. Like, like his competitiveness might've like created that friction at first, or, you know, you, you hear him talking about him in the locker room and maybe kind of disparaging him a little bit, but at the same, it, it's just his competitive juice to start in the flow as the game approaches that he's like, man, like this dude's going to be coming at me and I'm going to be ready 
and this is my team and we're going against him. And it, just that camaraderie, even though he was so close to so many guys on the opposing team, even when you saw there was a moment when Magic Johnson just came in just to say, you know, <laughs> have a good game. Like, what are you doing in here? Yeah, it's Lakers, like, it's Lakers MF or, yeah. Right, like, like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I'm just coming to say good game, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, uh, no, but I, it, I think it goes back to with something with Michael where it almost like, it was almost like he tried everybody first, you know what I mean? Like, he wanted to see, like, he wanted to mess with them first, try to get in their head, see how they would react, you saw it with Kobe because, like, you know, talking, talking trash to Kobe and all that. And then it, and other guys around, you saw, it, like, the total Tony Kukoc thing. Like, mm-hmm. at first, you know, he, they played Croatia and they, they, they just demoralized him purposely. Like, they went mm-hmm. at him and Scotty went after Tony Kukoc. Then right. the next game, Tony Kukoc played better. And Michael was like, all right. And it's, I think it was Wilbon said, like, when you talk to Michael. It was the Michael, Olympic uh, gold medal game, right. Yeah, he, and, like, they, when, you, when Michael the, talked the second afterwards. Game, the second game. Yes, the yeah. championship, yeah. So when mm-hmm. Michael talked after that game in the locker room, said, like, actually, you know what? This guy's pretty good. I think he can play. So just I think that was his way of, of gauging people would be, like, I'm going to make you uh, – I'm going to basically demoralize you and humiliate you and see how you react to it and how you react to it that's how I'm going to feel about you. Because even, like, think about, like, the Allen Iverson stories that, like, he tells. I think Allen Iverson said they first met, he called him a little bitch. Like, right, so, right, like, right. and then, but then as it, you know, Iverson took it, because he knows, all right, what am I going to say? It's Michael Jordan. So he took it, and then a couple months later, he crossed him over. So I'm sure that started their, like, mutual respect with each other and all that. So it's, I, yeah. I just think that was his way. I think that was how he kind of, that's how, kind of how he went about <clears throat> Like getting think, to know people in a way. Is that leadership though? What what is that? What, well, <laughs> like give me some perspective because it's like, like I don't know. You, you break people, you know, tear people down and then build them back up. I guess, but uh, you know, when you hear people talk about them, how about this example of the betting on the plane? Michael's in the back betting thousands per hand <laughs> at coin cards. B.J. Armstrong, Will Purdue, and the guys are in the front of the plane playing a dollar per hand. Um, but here's Michael leaving his $1,000 a game hand just to be in the front playing these guys in the dollar per hand game just so he can say he has their money in his pocket. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like uh, I, I just I, – I, I guess that – I don't – the leadership thing is just – I'm like – well, I guess he leads by example because it's like he's – dominating every opponent and you see that and then you try to follow suit well and i think an important thing in this part of this documentary it was a lot psychologically to kind of unravel right because of uh, because of him with the gambling stuff and you know being an ac before the playoff game in new york because his dad told him he wanted wanted to get away from basketball it's a lot of none of us are perfect you know what i mean and no, it, honestly, Danny, was that the, is that the best way to lead? No, it, it's probably not the best way to lead. But for him, it was the best way for him to see who was on his level. Like when he's antagonizing Scotty Burrell, it's to say like, all right, Scotty, you're a young guy. You want to be like, if you want to contribute to this team, you want to be on my level. You're going to have to get on my level. And you know what I mean? Like I, I think that's how he saw it. I don't think he saw it as – and it's like it's like, – it's, Again, we, we, we can't look at it as – because he wasn't perfect. And that's the big thing I'm taking away is this is – a lot of this is him recognizing his flaws and recognizing where maybe he made mistakes and recognizing where maybe he could have been better. And, I mean, some of it's him not admitting that too. But um, – and I, I think that's a big part of it is that, you know, it, what, he wasn't the perfect teammate. And, you know, that book, that Jordan Rules book that came out that – kind of painted a picture of him not being the greatest teammate in the world. Well, might have not been that factually inaccurate because there was a lot of guys that he rubbed the wrong way. But I also think, look at Kobe. There was a lot of guys that Kobe rubbed the wrong way. Some of these great players, even Allen Iverson, there's just there a lot of guys that are this great and that are just driven so hard by this and this one goal. They don't, they, they don't consider all that peripheral stuff. And all they're focused on is winning. And whatever they have to do to do that. So 
is that the best way to lead? Maybe not, but it might be the best way to win an NBA championship. I think the fact if you if you've heard both of these quotes, uh, each attributed to Jordan and Kobe. Uh, one from Shaq, where Shaq said that he tried to tell Kobe to pass the ball more. And he said, well, Kobe, there's no I in team. And Kobe said, well, there's a me in that month. You know what I'm saying? And then yeah. Mike uh, was quoted as saying that someone, he said, you know, there's no, someone told him there's no I in team. And he said, well, there's I in win. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like that mentality of like all or nothing um, it definitely, I think, can inspire people. Um I think the thing with Mike is like the competitiveness, man. Like he had to try you, like you said, to see, you know, what, where he could like position you, um, where, where he could compartmentalize you. Um, I think that, you know, when you look at the progression of like what he went through to where he was, all that Detroit Pistons and, you know, all those wars he went through probably is what conditioned him to be like so – over the top with that competitiveness when it came to his teammates, you know what I'm saying? Because he felt like if you can't help me be my greatest, then I don't need you type of thing, I guess. I don't know, but, um, but you see it come out in every way, shape or form. Like I mentioned with the airplane, you know, card game where he left his expensive game to go play in their dollar per hand game, just so he could take their money. And then like he's pitching quarters with, you know, the, the guy with the blonde curly hair was such an interesting character. Yeah, that guy. I, <laughs> we, we, we need more. We need more on that fella. I need to know his life story. I need yeah. more. Oh, man. So he's betting with the security beforehand. Um, it, it just uh, it, indicative of the man and the trip to Atlantic City, as you mentioned. It, it, just, it just took me back to like a moment in time that was just so surreal in so many ways because you had Michael Jordan who had this perfect persona not because he was perfect but because that's how like madison avenue and like the gatorade and nike like um portrayed him because they were trying to sell sneakers and products but you know when you peel back the layers you see that you know michael was so intense in so many ways yeah and i just look at that whole thing and like you know him, him missing the play like again him going to ac before the playoff game and how much that got blown into a huge big deal down oh two and Yes, down 0-2. Down 0-2. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I, and it's funny because I just – there was this sentiment, this whole thing, and, again, it's like almost like a case study type of deal with, like, him versus the media and how basically it seems like the re, part of the reason he, he winds up leaving basketball to play baseball – I mean, they're going to get to that, but is because he was so worn down from having his public – his private life, excuse me, scrutinized so much – and by the media asking so many questions about it, it seemed like it wore, to me at least, it seemed like it just wore him down to the point where he just didn't want to do it anymore. And it's such an interesting dynamic because as media, we have a job to do. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not our job to tear people down or to, you know, but it's our job to reveal the truth. And, Peel back the layers, yeah. Right. And, and the reality was, it's... <laughs> He, he said, I have a, what was it? I have a competitive problem. I don't have a gambling problem. Mm-hmm. While he's doing sunglasses, an interview in sunglasses indoors, that's a whole other thing with a modern right. job. But, like, but, yeah, just that whole thing. And just uh, I think about – because there's all this talk about guys in different eras, yada, yada, yada. Listen, Michael Jordan, to me, would have been great in any era. It doesn't matter. You could have thrown him anywhere. He would have been great. It doesn't matter. But – I wonder how well he would have handled all of this social media ultra scrutiny. Like I look at LeBron James and you could say whatever you want about LeBron James. You didn't like the decision. Yada, all that. You talk about a guy who has not a whiff of controversy around him. Think about LeBron James has been in the spotlight since he was like 15, 16 years old and has never left it. And has only gotten that spotlight's only gotten bigger. And he has not a whiff of controversy on him. Has done a lot of great things. And it's just, I wonder how Michael Jordan would have handled this. Because this, this is not easy. Even I sometimes, I look at it with players, and like sometimes I feel bad as a guy who reports on it. Like, I'm like, man, like, do I really need, like, do we really need to be? And like, think about it too, Danny. Like, you weren't wrong to do it, and we weren't wrong to scrutinize it. But think about a couple years ago, when we're making it, or a couple years ago, a year ago, because it feels like a couple years ago at this point, 
when we're killing Joel Embiid for, go, for going into a friggin' Shake Shack after a game that they had won, and we're killing them for it. Mm-hmm. And, but think about that. Think about how far this has come that that's what we kill guys for. Like Michael Jordan's at a hotel, in a casino after he's down 2-0 in a series, and we're killing Joel Embiid for eating a cheeseburger. It's just – I just don't know how well no, Michael Mike, Jordan would have lived in that era. He wouldn't have oh, no. social media. He, he wouldn't even. He wouldn't even be on Twitter or Instagram, or have it privately run where they posted like all of his stuff for him or something like that. Um, he might have that. No, he might because like Nike might have made him do that at some point. You know what I mean? Like that might have been the thing, but it wouldn't have been him. Uh, man, you bring up Nike. Uh, you talk about stuff that almost never happened. Um, can we talk about the Adidas uh, <laughs> perspective of like, oh, we don't have a shoe, get away. Like <laughs> the, the, it, it, Michael's um, um, uh, agent is trying to reach out to Adidas to get a feel of like which teams are, might be, which uh, organizations might be interested in, uh, companies might be interested in bringing them on. And they're like, uh, we don't have a shoe, get away. But um, uh, shout out to Michael's mom for making them take that Nike meeting. Um, you heard I David Falk. In the uh, in the uh, the show, talk about the fact that they were hoping to sell, you know, what was it like, twelve million shoes or something in his like first that. four years or something. Yeah, yeah. and he sells one hundred twenty six million in, in, in his, his first year. year. Yeah, yeah, crazy. like man, uh, unbelievable. But uh, I think the thing that I'm still trying to come to grips with uh, when you think about what we talked to coach Lynham about and the fact that he says he shouldn't have traded Charles Barkley because you just don't trade a super and to see how great he was and to see the Sixers once again, getting dunked on by Jordan with Ron Anderson uh, in the wrong place <laughs> at the wrong time. Did you see that? He's like, Jordan's like spread Eagle flying through the air over Ron Anderson's stand. And those the ugly uniforms, dude, and those uniforms uh, just rub it, rub salt in the wounds. They were so ugly with the stars, yeah. like dangling. Oh, I don't know what the hell they were. <laughs> So, um, man, his dominance and the way he controlled the Eastern Conference for so long after the, that Pistons triumph, you know, from that early 90s. Like, he was the 90s, man. Like, he was the 90s. And I don't know, man. I look at, you know, this is called the last dance. And I think he was 34 in that last season. Um, maybe he was 36. Uh, I'm not but, sure. I think but, he might have been closer to 34 because then he get, cause then he. Took, took another, what, like two or three years off and then came back with the Wizards when he was, like, 38, I think. But they screwed that up, man, like, royally. Like, that, look, look, think of, like, just, I mean, we talked about it with people who know, with P.J. Carlissimo and Jim Lynham, but just to think that going into that last season, he's at arguably still his prime and has to walk away from the game. Like, that's where this all ends. Like, he's not playing anymore after 98, like. He doesn't play and then goes into a front office somewhere. It's just unfathomable that he was forced or I guess it was some of his choice as well because he didn't want to play if it wasn't with Phil, but just, just not, in position to continue. Okay, <laughs> not in position to continue to play. Yeah. It's just unbelievable, man. Politics. No, it's, it's – the, the Jerry Krause thing is just – it, it, just, I just wish it, it blows your mind. I wish no. he was here. I wish he was here to be able to give some perspective. Yeah, I know. Same, same. Um, I know Casey Johnson, who uh, covers the Bulls for NBC Sports Chicago. Uh, he so Jerry Krause apparently had unpublished memoirs mm. that um, Jerry Krause's family has actually given to Casey Johnson. He's been uh, slowly like releasing them, and there it, there's some you know if th- that's one of those if you want to get which you should, which we all should get the other side of things. Um, that's a good way to look at it. Um, Casey does an excellent job. Uh, covering the Bulls, he was all over um, all their uh, hirings recently. But um, yeah, I, I just it, it, when you go back to like the sneaker thing and how Michael wanted to be with Adidas and think of, we'd all be wearing like shell tops right now if that. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like so, like Mike, Michael's mom is actually the founder of Nike. She's the founder of Nike. Seriously though, right? He thought, what if yeah. he never if he never goes there and signs with the he wanted to be with Adidas. That's who he wanted to be with. And they're like, oh, we don't have a shoe. Yeah, Sorry. We don't have a shoe oh. right now. Oh my god. I think gosh. like it's it is crazy. like because you know, obviously you're much older than me, Danny, so it's but it's a little shut up. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> but I you know, I was born in eighty five, so around that time I was not born yet when they had when Michael's first shoe came out in eighty four. 
So mm-hmm. it's just, it's weird for me to think about the fact that Nike wasn't Nike yet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I grew yep. up with Nike always being the basketball shoe and right. it wasn't Converse was the basketball shoe and Adidas right. was the bigger company. And I remember watching the Bo Jackson 30 for 30 and Reebok was the company then. And Bo Jackson, like his cross trainer helped give them a boost too. Nike that is. So like Bo Jackson and Michael Jordan, like kind of made Nike what they are. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't the brand. And then for me growing up, Nike was always the brand. And like Reebok was only the brand because they had Alan Iverson to me. Otherwise I could care less about, about, um, about Reebok. And then even like Not- Adidas, like, man, like I, I had Kobe's when he was with Adidas, which is funny enough that Kobe first was with Adidas and then switched to Nike. But yeah, I, it's just, it's so weird to think how little things like that, like you said, if he doesn't take that meeting, how many things are different? Um, one thing about uh, Reebok, I had a pair of the pumps. That, that was a big deal for the pumps. me. Okay. Yeah, the pumps. Yeah, like because D Brown won the D dunk Brown contest, dunk and, he, contest yeah. and he pumped up his shoe with the like, oh my, he pumped up with Lori Dogs. Like it was a big deal. Um, so I, I had a pair of the pumps, but I had to save up for those. They were like 85 bucks. That was like a big like a big coup for me. I couldn't I wait you. to get on the basketball court with those. But um, you bring up Reebok, and, and I mentioned that Reebok story. You got to go to the 92 Dream Team. Mm. Here's Michael Jordan. And I, I know you're a Nike athlete, but to me, like, it was an extension of his competitiveness that he wouldn't let that warm-up thing just slide. Like, it, I'm looking at the doc. I'm like, it seems like everybody was on board with it. Like, there's other people signed the other – you know, organizations and endorsements and things like that. But he took it so personal that <laughs> Reebok had the sponsorship. So he puts the American flag, which is obviously an iconic photo now. And from a Reebok perspective, a sponsorship, like, what can you say? Like, he had the American flag on his shoulder. So it's not like you can say, oh, he was blocking right. our logo. or like, like, your hands are tied in that aspect. You know what I'm saying? And he um, said it. He's like, wait, did they see? What did, what did these MFers see what I got? <laughs> It's just like, I, what I'm getting, Michael is so petty. That is just so petty. Like, it's just something you wouldn't think, like, in a gold medal situation where there's so many other things to think about. He's like, get this Reebok logo off my shoulder. Um, so, <laughs> I, I got to be honest with you. Like, I, I love it. <laughs> the pettiness? Yeah. I, I think it's, a, it's a, honestly, I think competitive people are like that. I think a lot of competitive people are just petty, man. Like, they, they don't want to give you an inch. Like they want to take everything. And, and, and like, and he's a don't sore get me wrong. Loser. If it, he's a no, sore loser. Oh, absolutely. But that's again, most competitive people are very sore losers. And don't get me wrong. Like if I hate dealing with people like that, but at the same time watching it, I, I enjoy it from afar. But yeah, right. if I had to deal with a human like that in, in real life, I don't, I don't care for it. Patrick Ewing walks into the locker room <laughs> to congratulate the man. On, on beating them in the game, winning the series, and he just goes and said, yeah, I had to – or no, 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 that, that was his last game in MSG. That wasn't a playoff game. But uh, right. I just congratulate him on winning the game. And he's like, yeah, we had to whoop your ass again. I had to take it back to 84. Like, like what? Like, bro, I'm just coming to dap you up, man. Like, the game's over. Like, but, uh, I mean, just, just overwhelming competitiveness. And it's going to be great to hear from Mike Tolan and get some perspective on how the documentary is put together. And, you know, ESPN moved the documentary up. They're still finishing up several episodes. Do you feel like when you look at what, what happened and, and how things are now, um, is this Bulls team to you better than that 73 win uh, Warriors team or any of those Warriors teams like that comparison has been made that the Bulls and the Warriors you know the the, the style and, and the play and things like that did you have any perspective on that I don't because I'll tell you okay. I, I shouldn't say I shouldn't say I don't have any perspective on it. I do have perspective on it but I I can't give you a straight answer on who I think would win because of how the game evolved and to the Warriors credit they were a and Steph and Clay they were a huge part of why the game changed to a three-point oriented game. So, but my thing is this, I think that if you put Michael and Scotty in this Ooh. era, they would have they would have taken more threes. You know what I mean? And they would have made that a bigger part of the game knowing that it had become a bigger part of the game. And we've seen like there Michael there were I think that that Blazer series, he he I think he shot like 45% from three or something ridiculous like that. So, 
it's not like he wasn't capable. It's just that wasn't the game then. It was played differently. The long twos weren't a thing then. Or, or sorry, they were a thing then. They aren't a thing now. So I think that they would have adapted because they were so great. They would have been able to adapt and figure it out. You would have got like guys like Steve Kerr would have had a bigger role. John Paxson would have had a bigger role. Like guys that could shoot the three, uh, you know. And, and so, I, and then if you put the Warriors in that era, in the Bulls era, I think again, I think Steph was so great at what he did. The way he was able, the way he's able to handle the ball, the way he's able to do things, he still would have been great in that era too. And even Clay, like, yeah, maybe, maybe the threes wouldn't have been as big of a thing, but like he would have just killed you with mid-range twos all day. So I, I don't like to give a, a perspective on who I think would win, just because I think the game is the two. They're almost playing like two different sports uh, it, when you look at it back in history. So I don't know who would have the easier time adjusting to each era. So I'm just gonna stay out of the who I think is the greatest uh, greatest for each era, and I'm not separating them. You know why? And like you said, it was two different leagues. But you know what the difference was, I think, is Kobe said it um, when he talked about the fact that he was, what was he, 19 in the All-Star game? or And he's playing against, like, it was an older league then. So, so you know, Mike's, like, in his 30s, um, and the league itself w- was older. You know, players stayed with teams longer. And, you know, we, you saw previously in the series about the Scottie Pippen deal where he signs for seven years um, with the team. So <clears throat> well, you're talking about a 26, 27, 25-year-old guys going against 33, 34-year-old uh, guys. You can see the muscle on somebody, the lean muscle on, on a lot. Of, it's just a different caliber of player I think that is it a sturdier player or a player who has more endurance you know I'm I'm not sure but I think defensively and the grown man strength of the Bulls I can just see a difference in the in the you know the baby face Steph and and Clay and you know Draymond is really young and 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 whatnot I I just see a difference in those players but to flip that to flip that look at the athleticism like good luck like Steve Kerr trying to guard Steph Curry like that's not gonna happen uh they they wouldn't just like and yeah and stuff like that but I'm and just like now the way the game is played where one of the things the Warriors did so well aside from shooting was defense and their ability to switch everything when you look at Clay Iguodala Draymond Green those guys just switched everything, and all three are above average to elite defenders. So what they were able to do defensively, is, is to me, is almost equally as – even, you know, they had a guy like JaVel McGee protecting the rim too. So I don't – yeah, to your point, I do hear you. Like, it was, a, it was more of a grown man's league. The physicality was much greater. They didn't call a lot of stuff. I see sometimes what? Michael – I see a highlight. Even Michael Jordan, who got a lot of calls, I'll see it. I'm like, damn, how was that not a foul? Just because I see so much of today's game. But it, it, in, the, in the converse, like a guy like Draymond Green would have thrived in that era. And he would have – to get back – seriously, like how good would he have been? He would have in my head, that. I just see him kicking people in the balls. Like, boom, But I agree with you. And you, you look at the daggone Knicks Bulls series, you just get up and can shove dudes. It's not a flavor or a tech or anything. It's like it's just, hockey. just break it up. You just break it up and move on. Um, it, it just, man, it just brought back so much of that intensity, man. Because, you know, I think that I hated the Knicks because they were foils to the Sixers. And I was a big Michael Jordan fan. So seeing the intensity of those series and the fact that the Knicks were always so good and always like restocked their players really frustrated me. And man, it just, just brought back some crazy memories and of the intensity. They and some the nasty customers, man. The Knicks, like Anthony Mason, Charles Oakley. I mean, they, John Xavier Starks, McDaniel. They, Xavier damn, McDaniel. Yeah, dude, yeah. they had some nasty customers. I mean, that is a compliment. Like they were just, yeah. they were tough dudes, man. Like they, they would literally fight you on the court. Nothing twice. Yeah, Derek Harper, uh, another guy. Um, I, I just, just, yeah, looking back on it, man, I think someone I saw on social media, if the bad boy Pistons and those Knicks went up against each other, it would been like ambulances like, Yo, right? hanging outside. <laughs> right? Yeah. It would have been fun. But um, a lot of fun for us to talk about this series. We're continuing to bring you, you know, people who you think, um, who you will want to hear from, 
from particularly with perspective from PJ Carlissimo and the dream team and Jim line gets going against those bulls in the nineties and some of the experiences he's had, but have a listen to Michael Barkan and Mike Tolan just dissecting what it's been like uh, to this point, uh, talking about this bulls, this uh, last dance series and what it's taken to get to this point and, and bring it to fruition. Here he is. Your NBC Sports Philadelphia podcasts are now on the My Teams app. Listen to Eagle Eye, Sixers Talk, Phillies Talk, and Flyers Talk right now. Danny and Paul, thank you very much. I'm thrilled to introduce right now the pride of Haverford High School. That's right. He's a Philadelphia area guy and now out in Los Angeles. Went to Stanford University, has produced such films and shows as Arliss, as Radio, as Summer Catch, and many more that we can tell you about and maybe we will tell you about Mike Tolan joins us now and the reason he's with us Michael great to see you it's because you are the executive producer on the documentary series on ESPN about to enter parts five and six this Sunday called the last dance to be able to get a hold of you for this was just awesome I was so thrilled that we were going to be able to talk tell us when you look at you got the okay for this project Mike in 2016 the news release went out in 2018, and here we are in 2020 watching wow. The Last Dance. Uh, tell us yeah. how this all came together. Well, the footage was shot in 97, 98 when uh, facing their, uh, an opportunity to win their sixth title in eight years, the Bulls were, uh, let's just say there was a little dissension in the ranks, as viewers have already seen, when, when the general manager says to the coach, you could go 82-0 and 0 and it'll still be your last year. So that was Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson. And Phil just declares this is the last dance. And NBA Entertainment says, we got to shoot this because this is a once in a lifetime. This is a generational team. You could argue the 60s Celtics versus the 90s Bulls, two greatest dynasties in NBA history. Um, so Adam Silver, who was the president of NBA Entertainment then, goes to Reinsdorf and Krause and Jackson. And they all say yes. And then finally, he goes to Michael and says, if you let us film the season, we won't do anything with it until we have some kind of mutual understanding. So we won't arrange a distribution deal. We won't go out to anywhere without your authorization. At the very least, you have the greatest home movies ever. So Michael says, yeah. And uh, it sits on the shelf. And every year he says no as he comes back to play the wizard, play with the wizards. There's the Hall of Fame. He's now owning the Hornets. And, um, you know, life is just going on and Michael's too busy and doesn't really want to deal with it. Um, I always knew about the footage. It was always this, like, you know, the treasure trove, like the, the, the little known secret, but eventually somebody was going to unlock it. Um, yeah. And it got to 2016 and all of a sudden people were consuming documentaries in multi-part long form series. And I figure I'll go back to Michael and his team and say, Let's do this as a big event. Let's do this as a 10-part series. Four years later, here we are. No sweat, right? No sweat. and Not at all. It's amazing. And that's the other question I have for you. I've got millions of them, obviously. But, but I'm thinking every Sunday night through May, which is great, and then the, the first two, the previous two episodes there, and then you got the new ones. And, and I'm, I feel like I'm ready, getting ready for Monday Night Football, man, watching this thing. And I got my, my son, who's, who's 19, and, and, you know, he really has no uh, memory of, of Michael Jordan. He was three when Michael Jordan retired, for goodness sakes. Maybe he was even two. Um, I got my daughter's boyfriend. I got my son's uh, fraternity brother. Nice. We're all sheltering in place together, w waiting for this team, uh, this thing. Why not uh, do it successive nights, 10 straight nights, and, and leave everybody tongue-wagging that way? Well, kind of because we couldn't. Because, as you may remember, this was slated for a June 2nd premiere. So when the world stopped spinning on Friday the 13th, March 13th, all of a sudden there's a clamor. It starts on social media, and there's a little groundswell of, like, we have no sports. The NBA's been shut down. The NCAA, the March Madness is not going to happen. What a great time for this Michael Jordan piece because we've been promoting it to come out in June. And so we have this hurry up emergency conference call on Monday, the 16th of March. ESPN, Netflix, Jump Inc., Jordan's company, the NBA, Mandalay Sports Media, the director, Jason Hare, the edit team, everybody. And we see this opportunity and we look at it and we go, we got to take advantage of it. But we're still making the shows. We got six in the can. We have seven, eight, nine, and 10 in various states of incompletion. 
And so we say, give us a day and we'll come back to you with a schedule, with a plan, with like what's doable. And it, it became clear it was going to take us till May, roughly May 15th to be done. So they backtimed it from May 17th as the last airing. And if we do it only two a week, we could start it as soon as April 19th. It was just logistics and math and doing the best we could. But Michael, it's like nothing I've ever done. I mean, we got some shows that worked, some that didn't, some that were panned, some that critics liked. I've never had a show where they thank us, where people say like you did, man, my whole family can't wait till Sunday night. My wife yeah. never watches a basketball game, but she loves these characters and she's so into it. It's such an incredible ride, I've got to say. Wait, wait, did you sit on sit in on all of the interviews or, or yeah. selected? Well, in, uh, okay. well, so what was that like? You know? There's 106 guys, uh, 105 one-offs, 106. Well, we got 10 hours to fill, all right? It's a lot of airtime. Um, we did Michael three times, so really 108 interviews. Um, I sat in on all the three with Michael. I was at Barkley. No, I was not at Barkley. Barkley, um, I was working on Charles forever. We got to get Charles. Um, couldn't go because it ended up being in Atlanta. Um, sat in on Rodman and Kerr and Phil Jackson in Montana. Um, the interviews with Michael were, you know, really the backbone. Um, three interviews, roughly eight hours of content. The first one was more than three hours long. Um, so Jason Hare, the director, is very thorough, very big on research, on preparation, he comes to play, and we're all there on pins and needles because, let's face it, until Michael sits in that chair and starts talking and we see, is he really into this? Is this really happening or not? So, like, one of the first indicators, which you saw in the first episode, Jason reads him this quote about the early bulls being the, uh, the flying cocaine circus. <laughs> now, you know, Michael Jordan the player in the 90s would roll his eyes and laugh and say, oh, yeah, that's funny. Next, he leans in, as you heard, and said, first of all, I never heard that. So now Jason's credentials are established, like he's digging deep and finding stuff Michael didn't even know about. And then he goes into this great detail about knocking on the hotel room door, and there are the lines, and there's, you know, like, there's, I mean, chapter and verse of what was in front of him and how he stayed away from it. Um, so then we realized if Michael said yes after saying no for all these years, it's not just an impulse. He's thought it through. He's at the stage in his life where he's ready to kind of, you know, debunk and demystify and tell the real stories. He's ready to be reflective. He's ready to be emotional. I think maybe the, the, the most heartening thing about people's reaction is they're saying, wow, I never, I'm, I'm seeing a side of Michael Jordan I've never seen before. Yeah. I I agree, and and uh, you know you hear the murmurs before it came out, and and one of them that I had heard was you know what you, you're just going to put him in a in a different light, and it wasn't said complimentary. And so far, I mean, through four episodes, I think he looks pretty good. Look, I wasn't thrilled with his Hall of Fame speech. Uh, I wasn't thrilled with a couple of things that he did at the end of his career. But this, like, is I love the cigar too, sitting right there. Yes. Right there. I don't know if that if that's bourbon or scotch, but he's got it right there and it's neat, which is really cool. Three interviews with Michael Jordan. That that that's yeah. amazing. How did you keep the lid on on so much of this stuff? Is like you look at um, the the episode with Isaiah Thomas, and that's one of the reasons I always, I never could stand Isaiah Thomas because I watched those conference championship games between the Bulls and the Pistons. I saw Michael jo Jordan shake Isaiah Thomas's hand when the Bulls lost all those series, and then they walk off losers, and they just bypass them. They always made me sick to my stomach. And now Isaiah's trying to play it off like, oh, man, I didn't even know. But how yeah. do you keep a lid on all that stuff? Well, I mean, you say keep a lid on it. I mean, you know, everything we do is, like, privacy protected. Um, there's, like, 10,000 hours of footage. So if you're trying to – pirate some of this footage you have a hard time sorting through it and uh look we've learned through the years you know you have to be really careful you know you don't mind leaking out a little bit there's been promotions on this thing for for two years so we're trying to tease and we're trying to let people know hey we got obama hey we got clinton hey we got magic hey we got phil dennis scotty steve Kerr. we got everybody um i don't know uh it just was a process um it wasn't easy there were a lot of chefs in the kitchen. Um, 
There was an awful lot of scrutiny on a project this high profile, a lot of personalities, a lot of agendas. But the best part about it was when we saw the opportunity in front of us, it's like, it's like the two-minute drill. All right, we got no timeouts. We got no huddles. We got only the A-list plays. Everybody's got to be digging in. Uh, I mean, the team came together in such amazing fashion. And the way Jason orchestrated this, taking the hard drives, editors going to their apartments, cobbling together from six different sources. Um, I mean, it's really a wonderful team. We had this great Zoom, no red carpet premieres, obviously. You don't even, after four and a half years, you don't even get to like walk down a red carpet and take some photos and have a cocktail. So we did a Zoom and everybody's on this thing, all the producers from all the different camps and all of a sudden, Bob Iger, the head of the Disney company comes on and Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA comes on and Michael Jordan comes on. It was a extraordinary outpouring of mutual respect and gratitude and um, excitement about what we were bringing to the world. If you had to describe to someone who had yet to see the, the first two installments of this, how would you describe what it is? Is it about Michael Jordan? Is it about that last season of the Bulls? Is it about the relationships that Bill Jackson has with the team members? There's, there's so much going on. Yeah. All the above. Great question. And that was the big challenge to juggle all of those perspectives, all of those agendas. We, we say it's 10 hours chronicling the greatest player ever to play the game and one of the great dynasties ever in NBA history. It's, it's I think, equal parts Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. We do deep backstories, as you've seen a little bit already. Obviously, Michael, uh, Scotty in episode three, uh, Scotty in episode two, Dennis in episode three, Phil in episode four. A little gem that we're saving till episode nine, just in case your viewers were going to quit early. Um, we do the Steve Kerr backstory in episode nine. Now, Steve Kerr was just, you could say, a bit part player, right? But he was kind of the, the next generation to John Paxson. Michael always needed a guy that he had confidence in and could trust to knock down the big three when they're double teaming him. Paxson won, you know, that, that, that early championship game against the, the, the Lakers to win their first title. Um, Steve Kerr hits big shots in the 97 and 98 playoffs. But what people don't know is that he got a black eye from a fight he had with Michael Jordan in practice. And he talks about how, in a way, that did wonders for their relationship because he stood up to Michael and he confronted him afterwards and they had it out and Michael earned a respect for him. And he actually thinks it, it carried over to his confidence in him on the court. And then we get into Steve's backstory. I don't know if your viewers are aware because uh, it's so long ago, but Steve's dad was the president yeah. of American University in, in Beirut, Lebanon and was assassinated when Steve was in mm -hmm. college. So like he, he and Michael have that tragedy in common of losing their, their father. Um, but he goes through what that was like, and we interview his mom, and um, he's just such a great, open, wonderful human who has such a great, I mean, having been Michael's teammate on the Bulls that set the record with 72 wins, and then having been the coach of the Warriors that broke the record with 73 wins, he's obviously like got, got, got a lot of perspective on the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, tell me, tell me that, the, that the video includes the fight between Jordan and Kerr, because we've so long heard that story if you remember everything anything about those Bulls teams tell me Michael that you have the one too My, Michael I'll tell you anything you want <laughs> but I think that's in episode 11 I'm not sure no okay uh, you know what I'm gonna wait for 11 I, I get that that's a director's track copy I yes yeah there you I, go. I'm, I'm yeah. looking there's I'm a looking lot of good forward. stuff though Pl plenty of picking on Scotty Burrell Scotty's sort of the the whipping boy but it all it all comes to fruition when uh Scotty has his big game in the 98 playoffs yeah, that's fantastic. Um, being from Philadelphia area, as mentioned, you went to Haverford High School. You were a proud Ford. Um, what, what, what are your recollections? Well, I guess you, you might have been out of town by the time I was. Michael well, Jordan's career. Look, I, uh, Michael, really not, not to date myself, but I, I'm old enough to have been there in 67 when the Sixers went 68-13 and mm -hmm. finally will beat Bill Russell. Um, oh, man, the days in convention hall – when the Celtics would get the insurmountable lead and Red Auerbach would light up a victory cigar on the bench. Must be hard for kids today. Like, you can't smoke anywhere in public. Red Auerbach was lighting a cigar on the bench while the game was still going on. 
we're throwing stuff at him and like, you know, he became our, you know, arch enemy number one. Um, was there in 83. In the 90s when this was going on, the Sixers weren't really competitive. I mean, it wasn't until uh, Croce and Larry and AI got the team together in 01. To well, they weren't up. going against Michael Jordan. I mean, they had Charles and Jaminski and Johnny Dawkins and they, they, Hersey Hawkins. They had some talent. It was always right. the Bulls knocking them off. Right. Here's what's really cool, though. In the early episodes, when Michael comes in and they say, what are your goals? And he says, I just want the Bulls to be considered among the great NBA teams. And he says, the Lakers, the Celtics, and the Sixers. And then you realize yeah. the timeline. He's saying that in 84 because we had just run – we had just won with the full five-fold Moses Malone, mm-hmm. Dr. J team. So, like, nice to be – nice to be mentioned in that company. Yeah. I know you interviewed Kobe as well for this. Uh, uh, Kobe was um... – an arch rival, certainly by high school affiliation, as uh, Haverford and Lower Marion are are, um, are rivals. But but um, what was that like? And it just uh, kind of the wistfulness now when you when you think yeah. of the fact that he's he's gone. Well, it's it's you know it's it's what was it like then, and what is it like now? Looking back on it, um, I knew Kobe a little bit. Uh, as you said, he went to Haverford's rival, Lower Marion. Obviously, we were quite a few years apart, so we weren't actually you know going head to head. We met early on. He was interested in being involved in the project. And we said, well, you're certainly an important part of the storytelling. So we interviewed him about six months ago. Um, and he, um, he was so incredibly respectful of Michael. Um, Jason Hare at one point talks about how Michael won six and you won five, you know, sort of trying to, you know, kind of get a, uh, uh, get a little something out of him. And Kobe just said, look, what you see from me is what I got from him. And he talks openly about Michael being his big brother. You fast forward after the tragedy, the big event at Staples Center where Michael did the eulogy and wept openly and talks about how Kobe was his little brother. So it's so validating. When you see the episode, um, which is this coming Sunday, episode five, we dedicate the episode to Kobe. And it's the 98 All-Star Game, which was Michael's last as a bull and Kobe's first as an 18-year-older on the Lakers. and they're already trash talking, and they're already going head to head. And Kobe's already trying to be like Mike, um, but it's really charming. And there's a moment at the end that, like in in the context of what has happened, is just chilling. Um, it goes on. It's a, it's a great episode. I, th- I think we really start to hit our stride. It goes on to the dream team, that incredible team in Barcelona with Magic yeah. and Larry and Charles, where they really pass the baton and kind of acknowledge that Michael's the best player in the game now. Um, and then we get into the gambling. You know, it was very important for us to be able to address the, the kind of hot-button topics. So we talk about the gambling accusations. We talk about the conspiracy theories and, and his dad's untimely death. And, um, you know, I think nothing was, nothing was off limits. That's, a, that's, that's fantastic. Two more for you, my friend. And, and the, the first of those is you mentioned Michael Jordan, the greatest player to ever play and you're from Philadelphia and everyone would scream, no, no, how could you do that to Wilt Chamberlain? Um, uh, would you like to amend no. that statement? It's kind of an asterisk, Michael, like at sort of prehistoric times. I mean, Wilt averaged 50 points a game for a whole season. Like, I know. I it's know. just off the board. I mean, okay. I mean, you know, I'm friends with Bill Simmons, who's the Boston guy, right? He's already trashed Wilt in his book of basketball, made the case that Russell was better than Wilt. You know, I okay, I'll just say he's largely considered the greatest basketball player, and uh, and we'll take Will. But you know what's funny about that? You got three generations. You got Will, you got Dr. J, you got Allen. Allen's kind of my favorite. He didn't win the title for yeah. us, but he was so ferocious, and I taught my kids to appreciate the NBA by watching the little guy, right? He'd just get knocked down, and he'd get up. And, I mean, even 01 – it's kind of like the 93 Phillies. It ends with the, with the Joe Carter homer and we don't win. 01 ends losing 4-1 to one to the Lakers. But, like, the Tyrone Liu, the 46 points in game one, the ferocity of that team, it's, it's kind of my favorite of all. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, for, for many of us here, too, as well. Lastly, um, more general, what, what is the story of this quarantine, uh, of this pandemic that you would tell from a sports perspective? Is there something that leaps out at you? Mr. Filmmaker? Wow. Um, I've already seen they're, you know, they're doing a documentary on it. Um, I'm not. Um, look, I, I'd like to think the story we're going to want to tell 
is how sports brought the country back together. Um, I go back to, I guess it was the Wednesday, March 11th, when Rudy Gobert is diagnosed positive. It kind of felt like Adam Silver was leading the country. Um, I guess yeah. that's, that's really the story, is that sports took a leadership role, canceled the NBA season, they canceled March Madness. Whoa, this is serious, right? And I hope now, as the conversations continue, that Adam's going to find a way to finish off this season, that Rob's going to figure out a way in whatever format to start the baseball season and lead us to a World Series. And the football season is almost certainly going to start, in my opinion. And then, and then we'll have the two-quarterback controversy to worry about in Philadelphia. Yes, we will. Believe me, it's it's begun, as I'm sure you yeah. know. <laughs> and already it hurts. Amazing. Okay. Um, Mike, thanks so much for joining us, as always. Congratulations uh, on your career, but certainly what you've done with The Last Dance. All of you, your partners, your co-executive producers, um, and, and uh, your, your director, uh, Jason Heyer, who, who uh, awesome, awesome job. And, and uh, we look forward to see the rest of the, the rest of it coming up. Thanks, Michael. It's always great to see you. Wilmington University extends its deepest appreciation to the brave individuals who are working tirelessly on the front lines to protect, serve, and care for us during this unprecedented time. Thank you. WilmU stands with you. Man, thankful to have uh, Mike Tolan and Michael Barkan chopping up this series because we, we are just all thankful to have a little piece of basketball that we can talk about and review. I mean, look at the way social media i mean i know a lot of our threads are all like sports people and of the, of people of that ilk but man if you look down your timeline it's just perspectives and thoughts and just interesting you know people just talking about michael jordan's 90s fits which which are just <laughs> funny to see and um a lot of bagginess I, yeah a lot of bagginess <laughs> man and we haven't even talked about amara Rashad, you know a guy uh, who i mean uh somebody we're hoping to try to get on the podcast but former sixer amara Right, played played for the Sixers uh, for a brief moment in a preseason game as part of like a promotion, and um, you know a guy people don't remember, you know, was a four time Pro Bowler in the NFL as a wide receiver, um, and you know have to have to have a second incarnation like that as a broadcaster, uh, which I always think is cool. Um, a little bitter about that because he had two careers where I'm just trying to master <laughs> one, but. Uh, but uh, just, just, just so cool just getting the perspective and, um, you know, tough watching some of the people who aren't here who are, you know, featured in the documentary as well. But uh, it, what, what do you think of Amara Rashad? Did, did you – were you an NBA Inside Stuff guy? Did you – Oh, my you God. Him? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, it, it, and it, 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 I always found it so crazy. Like, I can't remember what age I was when my dad told me, like, yeah, he's a former football player. I'm like, what former football player? Like, no what? way. Why, yeah. why is he doing right. this? Right. But he was, so, he was great at it, though. He was oh, so great for that show. Sweet. And, yeah, yeah the show was amazing growing up. I, I just – nothing but fond memories watching NBA Inside Stuff growing they, up. They dusted off Willow Bay. I don't know if you remember her. <laughs> I saw but that. Yeah, I Yeah, they dusted I her did. off. I'm like, man, she looks great for, for however old she is. Um, but haven't been around as long as she has in the industry. But, hey, man, we're going to continue to pump you full of knowledge, uh, perspectives on this uh, Michael Jordan last dance, particularly from – the Sixers as well, because they were on the receiving end of a lot of these beatings from Michael, unfortunately. And we have to relive a lot of it um, as we look through the years as, as Michael <sighs> flexes his mighty might against us. Um, any uh, last thoughts, Paul, before we uh, talk about the website? Yeah, just again, uh, the biggest thing I've found, and again, not only through this documentary, but just in general, all these little connections and all this stuff, it's that, that to me has been like, if I've learned or kind of really something has really stuck with me through this, even this, just this quarantine time in general, just man uh, thinking of like, we, we all have them in our professional lives and even our personal lives, all these like six degrees of separation with all these people. And we've experienced it as we're trying to get guests on the show and everything. And we're so lucky to have someone like Jim Lydon at our disposal and Mark Jackson and guys like that. But it, it's just, it's so cool to just see how, sports and how specifically in this case basketball has connected everybody it's just it's been a really it's been a positive in a time where we haven't had a lot of positives i would like to talk a little more about isaiah thomas on the next podcast um sure just just to get a little 
depth, a little bit more in depth on how he suddenly, I, I don't know if, if we'll get into the next podcast, but I don't know if he's coming out a better in a better light or worse light. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to get how you thought about that, but we will save that for the next podcast because we appreciate you guys listening as always. Uh, Danny Pommels and Paul Hudrick here on Sixers Talk brought to you by Wilmington University. Wilmu Works. We appreciate you downloading the podcasts and all the five-star ratings, comments, thoughts, and suggestions. Keep them coming. Uh, for Paul, I'm Danny, our esteemed producer, Ben Barry. We will see you next time. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on the driver who treats the highway like a racetrack and the shoulder like a passing lane. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois.